is uh, Dr. Jennifer Kaiser, who many of you probably know, but she is the uh, she is the pharmacist, the PharmD on the ASODIDSA guidelines. She is critical um, and uh, and a brilliant woman. She's from University of Colorado Pharm School of Pharmacy, and she's going to be covering the whole issues around drug drug interaction. So, and you can drink that water. Thanks for coming. Hi everyone, I've been here before and recognized some of your faces. Good to see you again. Okay, so as uh, Dr. Nagy mentioned, I'm going to be talking about drug interactions. I have a top 10 list for you that I've prepared. Got me? Thanks. Okay, so here are my disclosures. And then at the conclusion of this, I'd like you to be able to recognize therapeutic classes of drugs with the potential for interaction with hep C therapies, to um, identify reliable resources that you can use to look up drug interactions because it's not possible for us to remember all of them, and then to develop a plan for managing interactions. So how did I develop this list? Well, first I used a paper published in 2014 um, by this group, Laufenberger et al. from University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And this was a database, a medical claims database. It included 20 million people covered by 100 different U.S. insurers. They identified about 53,000 of those patients that had hepatitis C and had gotten some type of um, prescription medication benefit. Um, among these 53,000 people, they had about an average of 10 prescriptions each, so a lot of medication use here. And um, I used this cohort to look at the medications that were most commonly used in this group, but also the concomitant diseases that these individuals had and the medications that would fall into that category. And then some of the interactions I'm going to cover are, are not interactions you're going to see very frequently, but they're really clinically important. Okay, so uh, just as a refresher, I won't do much pharmacology because I know your eyes will glaze over and I'll lose you. But pharmacokinetic interactions are interactions that result in a change in the serum or plasma concentrations of the drug. These can happen at the level of drug absorption, distribution, metabolism, or elimination. And then we have pharmacodynamic interactions. So for the pharmacodynamic interactions, they don't result in a change in the plasma concentrations of the drug, but there's some type of additive, synergistic, or antagonistic effect. And I'll show you at least one interaction today that's a pharmacodynamic in nature. Okay, so who's heard of cytochrome P450 enzymes? That's good. They've been, uh, we've been studying them since the 1950s. At least half of FDA-approved medications are metabolized by CYP3A4. Um, this is present in the gut. It's present in the liver. 2D6, 2C9, 2C19 also play important roles as well. And these enzymes can be inhibited or induced, and so that's going to impact the pharmacokinetics of substrates for those enzymes. Okay, who's heard of drug transporters? They're, they're not, you don't, they don't get as much press, um, most likely because we didn't have the analytical techniques to study these transporters until the early 90s. But the interactions that occur at the level of drug transporters are no less important than those that occur uh, via cytochrome P450 pathways. So these, there are thousands of transporters, uptake transporters that take things up, um, and then efflux transporters that pump things out. But there are some of relevance for hep C treatment I want to bring to your attention. So the first is OP1B1. This is an uptake transporter responsible for taking substances from the plasma and bringing it into or from the blood into um, the liver. And then there are efflux transporters that we hear about, BCRP and PGP, that are responsible for taking substances from within a cell and pumping them out for elimination. And just as with the enzymes, these transporters can be inhibited or induced and when this occurs, you then have a resulting um, interaction. So for every drug we use, um, that drug is going to have a therapeutic range. This is a range of concentrations that balances what we want to happen, the desired effect, with the undesired effects or the toxicities. And where an individual falls in this therapeutic range is a function of several intrinsic and extrinsic factors. So the intrinsic factors are things we can't do much about, age, weight, race, organ function, genetics. Extrinsic factors like food can influence PK and where someone ends up on this curve, and drug interactions, the topic of, of this discussion. 
Now, obviously, if a drug has a very wide therapeutic range, then you're going to have to have a big interaction to see a clinical result. Um, most of our DAAs have a wide therapeutic range, so that's beneficial. You'd have to have a big change in concentrations to see any reduced um, efficacy or more toxicities. However, a lot of the medications that we use with DAAs may have a more narrow therapeutic range, and so that's when the drug interactions are more likely to occur. Okay, you survived the pharmacology aspects. Let's get to the top 10 list, okay? So interaction number 10 is with amiodarone. So there have been um, you know, serious life-threatening cases of symptomatic bradycardia and at least one case of fatal cardiac arrest with the combination of sofosbuvir and amiodarone. And it is sofosbuvir that's the common denominator here because there were, of the nine original cases, three of them were on lidipasvir sofosbuvir, five on softoclatosphere, and one on semeprevir sofosbuvir. So all of the patients were on sofosbuvir. Now, there was an, uh, a paper that came out that suggested, well, perhaps this is some type of pharmacokinetic interaction that we weren't expecting. Maybe it's protein binding. Maybe it's a transporter-mediated interaction. But some recent data suggests this is not a pharmacokinetic interaction. At least in guinea pigs and rhesus monkeys, they did not see any difference in the amiodarone or sofosbuvir concentrations when these drugs were given together versus alone. So instead, this interaction appears to be pharmacodynamic. Um, it's hypothesized that Fosbuvir is either somehow inhibiting a calcium transporter or it's disrupting intracellular calcium handling. The mechanism's still not completely worked out, but this is what we think is happening. It appears to be an effect on the SA node automaticity with some later effects on AV node conduction. And there are conflicting data on the contribution of other DAAs to this effect. And some of the conflicting data is because um, they've used different concentrations of the other DAAs. So because of this, we recommend that you avoid, if possible, amiodarone during hep C treatment. But most patients are on amiodarone because they don't have any other option. If you have structural heart disease, you have to be on amiodarone. So the recommendation is then to um, admit these patients for the first 48 hours after initiating sofosbuvir-based hep C treatment, and then do daily heart rate monitoring for two weeks thereafter. Okay, so number nine on my list is hormonal contraceptives. So as Dr. Sag mentioned, there are a lot of younger people now that uh, end up with hep C, driven by the heroin epidemic. In young women of childbearing potential, one study estimated there's been a 22% increase between 2011 and 2014 in the incidence of hep C in young women of childbearing potential. Now, there are a lot of hormonal contraceptive options these days. You, of course, have your oral pills. They can be progestin only or a combination of ethanoestradiol and a progestin. You have a patch. You have a ring. You have injectables. You have progestin only containing implants. There's also an IUD. Um, one that contains a hormonal contraceptive, levonorgestrel. I have crossed this out not because it's not a good contraceptive method. It is actually preferred according to guidelines. But I've crossed it out because it doesn't participate in drug-drug interactions because the delivery of the progestin is local rather than systemic. So this is an option for any DAA treatment. So what are the data on use of DAAs with contraceptive hormones? Well, I um, have not included semeprevir decladosphere in my presentation today because we're just not seeing the use of it much more in Colorado. Can you raise your hand if you're still using semeprevir decladosphere? Okay, good. Then I, one of you. Okay. Well, then we can talk later if there's a class here that I need to cover drug interaction potential. Which drug are you still using? Okay, interesting. We can't, we can't get them anymore because they're more expensive um, in Colorado, so we're having to use um, you know, regimens that don't include some epravir decladosphere. So we can talk later if you have specific interaction questions. Um, but all of the DAAs have been studied with some form of oral contraceptive medication. And the data suggests that elbisvir, grisoprevir, lodiposvir, sofosbuvir, and sofosbuvir, valpatosvir are fine with any um, of our hormonal contraceptive options. However, you, there is some caution that needs to be exercised with PROD. So PROD was studied with three different hormonal contraceptive options. It was studied with norethindrone only, it has, was also studied with ethanol estradiol, norethindrone, and then ethanol estradiol and norgestimate. 
and what they found in these healthy volunteer studies is that although there wasn't a change in the ethanol estradiol pharmacokinetics, five out of 21 women had a grade three or four increase in their liver function test. So there was a safety signal, so they discontinued the study early. So we cannot use estrogen-containing contraceptives with prod. So this really limits us. It means no patch, no ring, um, no injectables, no implants, no estrogen-containing pills. And if a woman wants to resume the estrogen-containing contraceptives once prod therapy is completed, you need to wait about two weeks. So with norgestimate, the metabolites were increased about 2.6-fold by prod. So you can use a progestin-only containing contraceptive, but it needs to be norethandrone because that's the one where the pharmacokinetics were not altered. So that limits us to use of either the IUD with prod or a norethandrone-only containing progestin pill. Okay, number eight on my list was immunosuppressants. So this table comes from the AASLD IDSA guidelines. And you'll notice in green, these are interactions where there is no a priori dose adjustment necessary for the cyclosporin or tacrolimus. The gray is when we have no data, but we don't expect an interaction. Yellow, there is an interaction, and a dose reduction of the cyclosporin and tacrolimus is necessary, and red is the one situation where we have a contraindication with elbasvir, grisoprevir, and cyclosporin. So let's talk for a minute about prod. With prod, you need to reduce the cyclosporin and tacrolimus with the initiation of this therapy. And um, there's some really nice modeling data from AVI on what the appropriate dose reduction should be, at least as a starting point. And they have studied successfully these altered doses in the CORAL-1 study, which included 34 patients post-transplant. With Elbasvir grisoprevir, so uh, cyclosporin inhibits OP1B1 and 3A. So you have a big increase in grisoprevir concentrations, and so this particular therapy is contraindicated. So even for DAAs where no a priori dose adjustment is necessary, you still have to monitor these patients. And there's two reasons for that. First, there's some data that suggests that hep C disease itself actually impairs drug metabolism. So by simply suppressing hep C replication, you may have faster metabolism of a drug, lower drug exposures, and therefore require a higher immunosuppressant dose than what the patient had to have before starting hep C therapy. The other reason is that this appears to be a patient population where our healthy volunteer drug interaction studies are not perfectly predicting what's happening in patients. So if you consider cyclosporin and semeprevir, there was no interaction observed in healthy volunteers. But then we took it to patients and found that the semeprevir exposures were about six-fold higher than they are in individuals um, that were not receiving cyclosporin. And there's some data emerging with prod, as I understand it, with immunosuppressants. So it's very important to monitor the levels of these medications, um, of the immunosuppressants, and adjust the doses accordingly during and after hep C treatment. Number seven, antiretroviral agents. So a lot of you treat HIV and are familiar with drug interactions with antiretrovirals and hep C therapies. These are just some generalities here. Elbosphere grisoprevir is not compatible with efavirenz or etrovirine or boosters. The same applies with prod, with the exception that you can use adazanivir with prod. But you need to hold the ritonavir booster because you already have a ritonavir booster in the prod pill. There's also some uh, data to suggest you might be able to use darunavir if the patient is on once daily darunavir, not treatment experienced, and no resistance associated uh, darunavir mutations. Lodipasvir sofosbuvir is compatible with most of our antiretroviral agents. Um, the one exception is that tenofovir levels are increased when you use tenofovir disoproxyl fumarate. Um, Valpatosphere is a little more highly reliant on CYP3A for metabolism than lodipasvir. So a drug like efavirenz is going to reduce the exposures of valpatosphere by half. So we can't use efavirenz or etrovirine with sofosbuvir valpatosphere, and we see a similar effect of velpatosphere on tenofovir. If you use uh, tenofovir disoproxyl fumarate, the tenofovir levels are increased. I'll show you this in a graph in a moment. And you can always check for interactions with antiretrovirals and DAAs um, in the guidelines. There's a table there. So let's talk for a minute about this um, increase in tenofovir exposures. 
So we know that when you add ledipasvir sofosbuvir, you get about a doubling in tenofovir levels in patients who are on efavirenz and about a 40% increase in tenofovir levels in patients who are on rilpivirine that initiate ledipasvir sofosbuvir. But this isn't a big deal. And the reason it's not that big a deal is because now the exposures are simply in the range of what we typically see in HIV-infected individuals who are on ritonavir-boosted adizanavir and ritonavir-boosted darunavir with TDF. We have a lot of safety data with this combination. The problem occurs when you have patients on a booster with TDF and you initiate ledipasvir sofosbuvir because now their tenofovir exposures may exceed the range for which we have established renal safety data. So the guidelines currently recommend that we avoid boosted regimens with TDF in individuals that have a creatinine clearance less than 60 or in those that are on boosting agents. One alternative may be to switch the TDF to TAF. So TAF, there's less tenofovir in the plasma with this form of um, the medication. It has about a 90% lower circulating plasma levels compared with TDF, which is almost um, all converted to tenofovir. Both the TAF and the tenofovir can ultimately form the active form of this drug, which is tenofovir diphosphate. Also, TAF does not appear to be a substrate for the renal uptake transporter O1, which is the transporter that mediates the renal toxicity of tenofovir. So these are, this is good news for use of this potential medication as an alternative to TDF. So just for completeness, I've included um, this little decision tree. This is what antiretroviral regimen your patient is on and what your DAA options are based on the patient's renal function and also whether or not they are on tenofovir. I'm not going to go through it, but I did want to include it so that you had it as a reference. Number six on my list is statins. So anytime you have a patient on a statin and you are initiating hep C treatment, you need to screen for drug interactions because there are interactions with statins and every DAA. And that's because with statins, they can participate in both transporter-mediated and potentially cytochrome P450 mediated interactions. So pravastatin is a drug that they often use to determine a DAA's effect on OP1B1. So if pravastatin levels are increased, you say, okay, my drug is an inhibitor of OP1B1. Resuvastatin is a substrate for um, both OP1B1 and BCRP. But if the DAA raises the resuvastatin levels um, by a significant extent, then that drug is a pretty potent um, BCRP inhibitor, and a lot of DAAs inhibit BCRP. Several statins also rely on CYP3A for their metabolism. Simvastatin and Lovastatin are highly reliant on CYP3A for their metabolism. Atorvastatin is also metabolized by CYP3A, but to a lesser extent. So here are some uh, interaction data and dosing recommendations with DAAs and statins. So you'll see that most of them require either um, a dose reduction or potentially increased monitoring. There are some contraindications with prod. So this is the only one that um, has a contraindication. In the, I'll point out one thing I have different here than what's in the guidelines. Um, I'm sorry, the package prescribing information for ledipasvir sofosbuvir. So the package insert says that they do not recommend to use resuvastatin with ledipasvir sofosbuvir. But the drug interaction study was actually performed with ledipasvir and an investigational hep C protease inhibitor. So I think that the reason we saw such a large increase in resuvastatin exposures was actually due to that hep C protease inhibitor, not ledipasvir. I expect that the um, increase is similar to what we see with velpatosvir. So resuvastatin um, is an option, I believe, with all DAA therapies. You just need to use the lowest dose. Pravastatin is also an option um, with all DAAs. So number five on my list is antihypertensives. So about 50% of patients in the Laufenberger study had um, high blood pressure. And so some generalities about antihypertensive interactions. We typically don't have to worry about ACE inhibitors or diuretics. Um, carvedilol and nabivolol are the beta blockers that are metabolized to some extent by CYP3A4, so you may have to consider the potential for interactions with these two. Um, there is a contribution of CYP3A to herbisartan and losartan, 
And calcium channel blockers, a little light, should always go off in your head, just like with statins, that you should look for the potential for drug interactions with this class as well. So here were the antihypertensive medications that were most commonly used in the Laufenberger database trial. And you'll see that hydrochlorothiazide, lisinopril, metoprolol can be used with all the DAAs. There's about a 42% increase in furosemide trough due to UGT1A1 inhibition by prod. So you could consider a reduction of the furosemide dose. And lodipine requires monitoring with all of our therapies, and you may need to consider a dose reduction with prod because the AUC was increased about 2.6-fold. Number four on my list was benzos, anxiolytics, sedative hypnotics. So um, these medications were used by about 40% of patients in the Laufenberger study. Uh, Zolpidem was used by 14% of the patients. And so you'll see that, fortunately, this class um, doesn't have an enormous potential for interaction. You may need to reduce the alprazolam dose or do some increased monitoring with lorazepam and diazepam with prod. In a Dutch study, benzos were the most commonly used medication in hep C-infected individuals. Number three on my list is gastric acid modifiers. So the absorption of lodiposphere and belpatosphere is pH dependent. Now there are conflicting data on whether or not the PPI use actually compromises SVR rates. In the hep C target trial, they found that individuals on a PPI, um, not on a PPI, had 2.5 times higher, uh, higher odds of achieving SVR versus those that were on a PPI. But the TRIO um, study found that once daily PPI use was not associated with SVR. They did find a signal in univariate analysis among people using twice daily um, PPIs and SVR, but once they propensity matched the subjects on other characteristics, this um, statistically significant difference was no longer detected. So I think since the data are conflicting, it's safest to um, operate under the assumption that it could compromise SDR if you do not use them properly. So what does using properly mean? Well, with antacids, you need to separate these from cefospivir lodiposphere and cefospivir velpatosphere by four hours. You cannot exceed a famotidine 40 milligram twice daily equivalent of the H2 blockers with um, soft lodiposphere, soft velpatosphere, and if you use a PPI, you cannot exceed the 20 milligram omeprazole equivalent. And this is a table from Global RPH on equivalent PPI doses. If you use a PPI, the temporal separation issue is very important, or the timing around when you give these. So with lodiposphere sofosbuvir, you have to give the proton pump inhibitor simultaneously with the lodiposphere sofosbuvir in the fastest state. This is a difficult concept for patients to grasp and to consistently remember, so you have to continually educate them on this. With SoftVel, however, the recommendations are different. So with this medication, you're supposed to take it with food four hours prior to the PPI. So the timing around this is really critical. Number two on my list is antidepressants. So about 40% of patients in the Laufenberger study were taking some form of antidepressant. Our go-to drug for hep C patients tends to be escitalopram, and that SSRI is just fine with all of our DAA therapies. Um, a few of the uh, medications, for instance, trazodone, may require a dose reduction with prod, and a few of them may require monitoring, but no a priori dose adjustment. For completeness sake, I've included a little bit of uh, information on antipsychotic interactions, specifically with prod. So in the Laufenberger study, there was only about a 7% um, of patients that were on these medications. Another study, it was about 10%. But there's a really excellent review if you need more information on interactions with um, psychotropic medications and DAAs, recently uh, published in Clinical Pharmacokinetics from David Berger's group in Nijmegen. You'll see that a lot of the antipsychotics that we commonly use, like quetiapine, olanzapine, risperidone, are either contraindicated or may require a dose adjustment um, with prod. So the number one most uh, commonly used medication class in this study was opioids. So hydrocodone, acetaminophen, was the most commonly prescribed medication uh, in this data set 
Fortunately, methadone and opioid uh, medications do not interact. Uh, we don't expect it to them to interact with our hep C treatments. However, additional monitoring may be required with prod. And I have highlighted hydromorphone and oxycodone in yellow because they're... Um, uh, their PK is altered in advanced liver disease, so there's just something else to keep in mind that there may be a contribution of a drug interaction and um, altered PK due to liver disease. So I've presented a ton of interactions here. I can't remember them all. I don't expect you to remember them all. You need to know how to look these up, right? I use the University and Trust, uh, the University of Liverpool website for drug interactions. It's updated regularly, and they welcome feedback. So if I ever find something that I'm you know, unsure of or why didn't you include this, then I email them and let them know, and they appreciate it. If it's antiretroviral specific interactions, I mentioned there's a table in the AASLD IDSA guidelines. And for those of you who treat HIV and are used to using the DHHS guidelines, there's also interaction uh, information there. So in summary, I think drug interactions are a really important consideration in the treatment of hepatitis C. And most of our current therapies have really um, well-defined pharmacology, and we know a lot about their interaction potential. But you still need a systematic approach for identifying and managing um, drug interactions when they occur. Okay, and I think I have time now for questions. <laughs> Dr. Sherman. One of the things that we do is put patients on a non-selective beta blocker. Mm -hmm. um, and, and there's been a controversy in the field in the last few years about also the use of Carvedilol, which has uh, both selective and non-selective uh, functions. So uh, can you specifically comment in the setting of cirrhosis on the effects one might see on those non-selective beta blockers, and should we be avoiding carvedilol when we're treating hep C in those patients? I would only avoid carvedilol with prod. I think that, that there could be an interaction there. And if you still need carvedilol, you could probably start with a half a typical dose and then titrate it to effect as necessary. But I don't anticipate interaction issues with lubisvir, sofosbuvir, sofvel, um, or even grisoprevir, elbisvir, because grisoprevir is only a mild inhibitor of CYP3A. Uh, when you're Depends on where they repeat, start. Repeat the oh, question. Okay. So the question was, do I a priori dose reduce atorvastatin in the patients? Um, and if they're on a high dose, we do. So if we have a patient on 80 milligrams, we'll go down to 40, even with lodipasvir, sofosbuvir. Um, I would use an even lower dose if they were initiating prod, but we do reduce the dose. Um, if they are on a lower dose already, we probably just leave them where they are and monitor. Mm-hmm. All right, thanks. This has been a really wonderful um, presentation. Thank you very much. Uh, one question that we've had come up in our clinical practice uh, in regard to amiodarone is, is a sofosbuvir-free regimen safe to use? And in looking at, so I'd like your, your answer to that, but, you know, what I could find was that even grisoprevir, in theory, can still boost amiodarone, and so we don't really have any information about that. Is, th is that what, what, you, what you have as well? Yeah, so there's a potential for an interaction. Um, I don't believe it's necessarily this same pharmacodynamic interaction. The possibility for an interaction is that grisoprevir, as I mentioned, is a mild inhibitor of CYP3A, and amiodarone is a substrate for CYP3A. So you could have an increase in the amiodarone concentrations with that combination. But we don't have data as to whether um, some of these other uh, medications actually cause the same effect as sofosbuvir on the heart. That part we don't know. So I think the most prudent thing to do, I would use grisoprevir and elbosvir with the amiodarone if I had to. 
because it's safer than a sofosbuvir-based therapy. But I would follow the same guidelines for monitoring. I actually, if you could admit them for two days and monitor their heart rate and then send them out and have them do daily heart rate monitoring themselves for two weeks, that's a super cautious approach, but probably the right one because we just don't know. So what I think I'll do, uh, Ken, if you don't mind, come down with the speakers from this morning kind of all come up front. So we have about 10 or so, 15 minutes just to have open Q&A for in everyone. But I'll let Suzanne ask the first. Yeah, I, I was going to add to that. So um, so there have been now some animal studies, two, two in particular. One was presented at EASL as a poster. Um, and then there was one just published uh, that was an animal study in rhesus monkeys and uh, guinea, pigs. guinea pigs. And they actually, they actually did look at NS5As. Um, they did look at the impact of NS5As and found no signal in NS5As. Um, so uh, they did not look at NS3 for produce inhibitors that I'm aware of, but at least from the NS5A perspective, this signal that's going on around nukes or around soft in particular um, is not showing up in that study um, for NS5As. And in fact, that same group also looked at another nuke um, uh, that, uh, that they have internal and that also did not have the same signal. So there, you know, that's the only thing, to my knowledge, that's looked at other drugs in, in, in animal models. But right now, this may be a sofosbuvir-related um, uh, uh, issue, at least as it comes to NS5A, the other nuke, and SOF. So the, the, the Lou group, Gilead, that presented that poster at Easel, they did find that it was worse when you use sofosbuvir and decalatosphere together. But the critique from the group, the paper that just published in Hepatology, was that they used too much decalatosphere. So they used, um, there's no protein binding in that model. So they used decalatosphere uh, concentrations that would have been 100 to 1,000 fold greater than what we see in um, in clinical practice, so they didn't trust that their result necessarily that decladosphere augmented this effect. So, but that's why I said the data are kind of conflicting because one study said we found something, and then this better study, honestly, the one that was published in uh, hepatology and the rhesus monkeys and the guinea pigs, suggested no effect of decladosphere. Um, so, and, and with regard to the nukes they studied, yeah, the, the 3682 didn't show an effect, but they did have some other nuke on the shelf that they studied that did have an effect. So it's kind of interesting to figure out what it is about these compounds that is causing this either altered calcium handling in the cell or uh, inhibition of a calcium transporter. Yep. It's a lot we still need to learn. So any questions for any of the speakers from this morning? I guess now is a good time to kind of wrap that up. Can I take Okay. I wanted to ask uh, Suzanne a question, and this is maybe more of opinion, but in the context of the salvage regimens being so hard to get your hands on, if you're treating somebody and they do not have good compliance, uh, do you think that as far as the risks for developing resistance, is it better to stop cleanly in the middle or let them go to the end and see how well they do? So that is a great question, and that, that is clearly going to be opinion-driven. It'd be great to get a, get a, a, a show of hands. So I can tell you that. I was just talking to the other faculty members. I mean, we, we may well have the worst case of adherence in one of our patients at the VA that I literally saw in clinic yesterday morning, um, who is a decompensated cirrhotic. Um, he has hepatic encephalopathy, et cetera, not a transplant candidate at all um, for many reasons, who got a 12-week course of lead soft and ribavirin um, as, a, as a child pub. It took him five months to complete his 12-week course. My take on that was this. Because um, our pharmacist, who is fantastic, the pharmacist that we work with, the V is fantastic. Um, and the whole team was, why don't we just pull the plug? Well, my thought was, look, he's not getting another course of therapy. Right, he, 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 I would not give this man a salvage regimen. He has, he has failed to comply and adhere um, uh, and, and with this regimen. Why would I then take, you know, and, and give him a more expensive regimen that's even more complicated? He couldn't do it with the, a simpler one. Um, so I said, but at least he suppressed his viral load. Um, so he basically, from what I could tell, took his drug every other day. Um, it took him five months, um, and he finally finished it. And so I just said, you know what? He has a drug. We're going to finish this out. He, he has maintained suppression. I think it's very different if a patient's not adhering and their viral load is coming up. 
and their, or their viral load is still detectable um, and it's bumping around or has a clear evidence of breakthrough, I'd be done. I'd stop it and I'd move on. This guy was, t- was doing enough, maybe he's holding on to things for a lot longer because of his liver disease, that he was maintaining viral suppression. So I said, let him go. Let him use up the 12-week course we dedicated to him because mm-hmm. he's never getting another one. And I, I'll let you know how that turns out because he, 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 I checked an SBR4. Maybe I should log into the VA and see so yesterday. Maybe, maybe he knows more than we do and that his body is telling him. Right. That's what he will tell you. Oh, I can tell my body the levels are high, so yeah. I need to skip yeah. a day. Yeah. Yeah. Right? You, I heard that in HIV all the time. But I, th- I think the simple thing is breakthrough, stop. Um, maintaining suppression, you're going to have to decide how you, how you want to go with it. And it looks like Ken had a comment. Yeah, so, so we monitor for adherence, and we do viral loads at four weeks, and, uh, and we certainly read the riot act to patients that appear to be less than, than high levels of adherence. But you have to remember that there is a continuum of responses across the duration curve, and uh, that, in fact, there are some patients that are cured in four weeks of therapy. And so uh, we recently had a patient, uh, a patient with advanced fibrosis, and uh, he basically stopped taking his drugs at six weeks, and it took us like a half a year to get him drugs. So we were like, you know, ready to smack him hard on the head. But he achieved SVR, and, and you know, I think that once you've made the commitment, once you've started, you do everything you can to get that adherence. Uh, you won't know the outcome in any one individual patient until you get through your course of therapy. And I, I, would, I, would, just, I would add to that. Um, and again, it gets to, I think, as long as that patient's viral load is going down, and or getting to achieve suppression, that's very important. We have a patient who is on who is HIV infected, severe disease on Daxoff for 24 weeks, given his very complex issues around PPIs and ARVs. And it took this guy a really long time to suppress. I mean, literally, his viral kinetics took him 12 weeks. He went from 200 to 78 to 33. I was like, oh my God, I am, you know, and, and, the, and people were like, this guy's clearly not adherent. He's not adherent. He swears up and down that he is. And I just said, look, we gave this guy 24 weeks for a reason. We knew that he was going to, he had multiple predictors. So, you know, we see him a lot and we, we encourage, you know, but um, we, we're sticking with him because it's still going down. And as long as it's still going down, I have hope that that we can, you know, get him to a point of cure. But it's hard to look at. I'll give you that. And if he were going up, I would have pulled the plug. But he, but he, but he, he finally suppressed 12 weeks soon. There's, there's also one other group of patients that has not been well studied. Those with advanced liver disease that have portal vein thrombosis with, uh, with usually cavernous transformation, so they're starting to recanalize. Um, they are shunting almost all of their blood away from the liver. We've treated a few of those, uh, and standard treatment courses have not been effective. Uh, going longer has been effective in a few of them, and uh, so you need to be aware of that as another issue. You would look at the, the decline curve and say, oh, he's not taking the drug, but it's really the drug just isn't getting to the liver. Hi, I'm mainly an HIV treater, so um, some of this is a little bit new. The NS5A resistance, is that only a result of failure, or do some people just have that? Yeah, so you're going to hear a lot about this um, from Dr. Wiles. Uh, so I'm not going to steal his thunder. Um, so I may just stop there. You will, you will get this answer, okay? <laughs> you guys have heard me talk enough already. Um, I'm, I assume that there may be some discussion about access at some point, and, and it was mentioned earlier that that's such a huge issue. Um, along those lines, and, and for various other reasons, I just wonder, has there been any discussion about DOT in hep C? Either, either from the ASLD or um, the CDC health department? I'm currently doing a study um, where I randomize patients to use an app on their phone to do DOT and the other group to use a pill box. DOT. 
DOT, directly observed that's, therapy. That's TOT, isn't it? Yeah. Um, technology observed, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I ca- actually, I called it WAT, wirelessly observed therapy. But yeah, um, so they're using either a pillbox or um, an app on the smartphone. And, and I'm using an app you have to pay for, but there is a free one called Timestamp. So you may want to have your patient make some videos, and you know you could randomly pick a day to look and see if they swallowed them if you really wanted to, to uh, take a look at that. But I, I just wondered if that might help with some of these access issues because I think we're actually having conversations at a high level with payers, and of course, one of the concerns is, is that, and I, I just think it's unbelievable. I'm not saying it's wrong, but you know that that bottle goes to the patient. It's thirty thousand dollars retail value bottle, and then that's it. Um, and of course, we have we have the model in TV, and and you know I also wondered on the same along the same lines about the four week uh, check. You know the, the viral load. And we don't in our area. I don't think many people. That we're doing it with partially the hopes that in good faith we'll be able to show the payer that you know the paperwork, the patient and us uh, both are trying to you know do everything we can to use that resource wisely and show that we're doing that. So, in in direct response to this question about the testing of uh, DOT. Uh, there's currently a funded uh, large national trial uh, by the Patient-Centered uh, Outcomes Research Institute, PCORI, uh, testing um, uh, kind of modified DOT for persons who have recently injected drugs, particularly the target population that you're probably thinking about, people who may have uh, organizational challenges and other adherence challenges. And so uh, this trial will test in methadone clinics where it's easy to um, look at people taking the same um, medication at the same time every day. However, that doesn't apply outside methadone. And so in the community, there is a, uh, again, it's, it's technology-assisted um, adherence, but it is a direct video look, just like you would uh, look at someone swallowing a pill for TB um, that's then recorded and can be um, not monitored live, but can be reviewed later uh, as, a, as a model of DOT. So that is being tested with hundreds of patients being enrolled or soon to be enrolled. Um, uh, so you may get an answer in a few years, a couple years. One comment I'll make is it, to me it's remarkable how much the um, effectiveness matches the efficacy, meaning the efficacy is a clinical trial, the effectiveness is in clinical practice. And the response rates are pretty remarkable. Uh, even in practice. And I don't know if that's a bias where people who are going to the front of the line to be treated are more aggressive or assertive about uh, getting treated, and therefore they're more motivated. But um, in all the, like the target study and others in Europe, the, the response rates are pretty good, and it's only 12 weeks of adherence. I think us in HIV, we're sort of used to really harping on this. We're talking about lifelong therapy. This is 12 weeks, perhaps in some instances eight weeks. And so I think there are difficulties. And you're right about the payers insisting that there's a problem. I understand that. I mean, the, the thing I say to my patients, if your dog swallows his pills, scan their stool and retake. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's, it's expensive, right? So um, I'm not doing that. Yeah, well, well, I'm just going to gonna add to that really quickly that all of those groups, um, so TRIO has, the, the, the GECCO has also looked at this, not to toot our own horn on the guidelines, but it is very clear that if you look at whether treatment for hep C is given per guidelines versus not per guidelines, there is a difference in SVR. Somebody if you tr- if you, there are people who don't follow our guidelines. If you, so if you treat per guidelines, you do do better, and, and I think that's actually a really important point. Well, the other thing that's come out of those real-world studies is that if and when there is a gap, it tends to not be more than about 5% loss of it's all over 90 yeah. percent. They're clearly very forgiving. We just haven't quantified the degree of forgiveness for these therapies. And some of it has to do with the half-life of the drug. So if you have a patient that you suspect may have adherence challenges, pick the drugs that have the longer half-life because then you have some protection. You can punish them and add ribavirin. It has a 12-day half-life, so you've got, you've got extra coverage. Um, I have two questions. We still deal with a lot of the uh, insurances only covering them for eight weeks and asking for the viral loads, or approving 12 weeks and stopping at eight and cutting off the the coverage. And so I had one patient that started with 33 million viral load, and at eight weeks they cut her coverage. By the time we got her back on drugs again, it was four months later. 
So I called my friendly hepatologist at Johns Hopkins, Dr. Zulkowski, and he goes, he told me they go through the same thing. And he suggested that I do, you know, viral dough resistant tests and use 24 weeks of uh, uh, Harvoni. Well, she was still undetectable. We did get the drug, but she managed to remain undetectable. Um, but there have been many patients with gaps, and I am terrified that at some point in time, what am I going to do? I mean, I will do the resistant. If they're resistant, I have nothing to give them. So I, th- I think this is a horrendous issue, and I think this is actually why yeah, if, if I've had patients get approved for eight, and I refuse to start them until I fight with the insurer to give me 12 based on the fact that eight weeks is not approved by the FDA, right? The FDA approval is 12 weeks. They provide the option for eight in a patient where the provider makes the decision. Um, the guidelines very clearly for this very reason say 12 weeks. I so I, I fight them. I fight them and I don't start the patient until I get the 12 weeks. Now, the one thing I would say, and I don't, I mean, maybe I'll get in trouble for saying this, but I have had one case where the, where they, where the insurer pulled because the patient was undetectable at week four. I don't know what rules they're following on this. And they refused to fill the patient's last uh, four weeks. And we fought them and fought them. We were down to the last two days in their eight-week course. And I called the company. And I begged. Um, and they actually... And they actually gave me the last four weeks. Um, so, uh, you know, outside of what their other, all these companies' patient assistance programs are, usually they will listen to a plea where you are just stuck. Sometimes um, it's hard to get to a person, right? Right. I spent two hours and 47 I think the problem is the guidelines have come out as hard as we can. Um, and provide as much guidance as we can about this. I think ultimately my recommendation, I'd love to hear what other folks say, is that if you want 12 and you need 12 is to wait until you can get 12 before you start. Otherwise, you're going to be stuck. We have time for about two more questions, and I'll go here and there, and I'll go to my hand. Yeah. Um, I'm an OBGYN, and sometimes I have uh, hepatologists or other people ask me questions about what to do with a patient that's on therapy that has a positive pregnancy test, and I wondered if you had any thoughts about that. They're already on treatment. What are they on treatment with? <laughs> okay, so there, there is a study of that in pregnant women. I think the data are forthcoming here shortly, um, but that, that would be the good, best choice for a patient of childbearing potential. If in, in the event that they did become pregnant, then you're, um, you've got a the appropriate therapy. With the caveat that if ribavirin was part of the regimen, it is severely teratogenic and uh, you need to have appropriate counseling of the management of pregnancy. And that's it. Um, um, uh, by the way, the ribavirin question, I heard one of the I was wondering if you could comment on the um, on-treatment viral load monitoring. So we traditionally have done four weeks, plus or minus eight weeks if they don't have an RVR, 12 weeks, end of treatment, and then SVR 12 and SVR 24. And resource-limited setting, that's a lot. So trying to get a sense of sort of, we've just dropped the 12-week. We don't think that makes a difference. Um, I'm curious if you all are doing SVR 24 at all or... Well, I'll start that one. There's different answers to this. We we do routinely four weeks and then end of treatment, and then we try to do a, a 12. And I tell patients at the end of the 12 weeks, you have achieved SVR, and when we do this once more, I will proclaim you cured. Now, there's nothing about that in the guidelines, but it goes to the issue that uh, commercial labs are still wrong between 4 and as high as 6 to 8% of the time, and you don't want to tell someone they're cured, have them disappear, and uh, not be. So uh, uh, we like to see two negatives to say that they're actually cured. Yeah, and so I, I, I mean, I think monitoring initially for adherence is really important. I mean, I, I do think in the resource-limited setting, I, it's pretty easy to argue that if you know the patient's taking the drug, you really don't need to do this, right? As opposed to the old days where there was a lot of viral breakthrough with the first kind of PI plus PEG-RIBA, 
and there was and you made decisions based on you know that that's no longer the point. So it really is strictly for monitoring. So I actually. I, again, I practice outside the guidelines. I actually do a week two because it takes 10 days for my lab to get me a hep C RNA. So if I do a week four, by the time it's back, my patient's halfway through therapy. And if I, if I, if I have an adherence problem at that point that they're not kind of being forthcoming about, then, I'm, then the cat's a, a kind of out of the bag. So we do a week two. I don't always do a week four, actually. As long as I see them drop, many of them are less than 200 by week two. Many of them are less than quant but detected. I'm done. Um, and then I don't do 12. And then I do SVR 12, and I do do something beyond SVR 24. I don't say they have to come back at that point, but in the in the in the the the, one, the longest term kind of follow up that I know post SVR, there's a post SVR registry for the for the Gilead uh, phase three trials, and in that study, one in a thousand people relapse between 12 and 24. How much of that is lab related, how, you know? But but one in a thousand is a tiny number in a resource limited setting, public health perspective, you would ne- not find that worthwhile. But in my practice, what I usually do is send them back to their internist or their HIV provider and say, in the next year, just check them again and make sure that this is right. The only other thing that I would add really quickly is um, labs will frequently get this wrong. We have had so many patients whose viral load comes back and it's, you know, literally, you know, it's like, I don't know, 500 or something, and it's just wrong. It's, their patient's undetectable. They're, they haven't really relapsed or they haven't really rebounded because the, the lab, there's lab error. So just remember that. Don't get too excited when the first one comes back. Um, because lab error happens, and you definitely have to confirm something like that. Yeah, so the guidelines do not, if I remember correctly, do not recommend a follow-up after, after the 12-week post-therapy, So, correct? actually, I think they say 12 to 24. 12 there to 24. There is 20... an SBR 24 check. Yeah. They, they took away the 12-week. They say week four. They don't, they don't say end of treatment anymore. We used to say, we used to say four, end of treatment, 12. Now, I'm pretty sure we say four, no end of treatment, and 12 to 24. They leave it open-ended. You uh-huh. can decide as the provider. But one time. Check me on that. But one time between 12 and 24? I don't know that we specified time. I think that was the whole discussion was some people were really uncomfortable with the idea of only doing 12, and so they left it open-ended. Um, maybe someone can pull it up and, and look at it. All right, we'll pull and, it. And don't forget that the ELISA test stays positive after cure because we do get referrals back saying the patient still has hepatitis. And, and yes. Those are very uncomfortable discussions. Okay, so we'll, we'll get back on that. Um, but now we're going to go to lunch and uh, chew on this question for a while. Um, so uh, thanks to everyone for a great morning. We have resistance and cases coming up, and then we close. And I think this has been great so far. So thanks for your attention. We'll come back about 1, 1 o'clock. I actually try to tell the patient.